Good morning, church. If you would now take a copy of God's Word and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. If you're using a Bible there in the pew rack, we'll be on page 232 through 233 this morning. We will conclude looking at 1 Samuel chapter 10, which we began a couple weeks ago. As you're turning to 1 Samuel chapter 10, let me remind you of the context. In chapter 9, we met a man named Saul who was out looking for his father's lost donkeys. He and his servant inquire of the prophet Samuel to help them locate the donkeys. But the day before Saul arrived to Samuel, God had told Samuel to anoint Saul to be prince over Israel. Samuel invites Saul and his servant in for the evening, and at dinner, Saul is given the choice portion. He's given the king's serving. The next morning at the break of dawn, the prophet sends Saul and his servant away, and as they're leaving, Samuel instructs Saul's servant to go on ahead so that he might give Saul a word from God in private. The word is that God has chosen Saul to be the leader of Israel, and Samuel anoints him to be the prince over Israel in the beginning of chapter 10. In the first 16 verses, God then gives Saul three confirming signs that he has been chosen. And what we'll look at today in verses 17 through 27, we see Saul is chosen by God now before the nation. And the people of Israel declare that Saul will be their king. Before we read God's word, let's go to him and ask for his help in prayer this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Blessed are you, our Lord, our Heavenly Father. Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and majesty. All that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. Our Heavenly Father, you are exalted above all. In your hand are power and might. This morning we ask that your kingdom would come as we have already prayed. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us, we would be people living for your glory and your kingdom. So we ask that through the reading and preaching of your word this morning, you would strengthen our faith in your son Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, 
who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! And then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. For an unprecedented, unprecedented eight consecutive years, from 2003 to 2011, the TV show American Idol had the highest rated episode in all of American television each year. If you've never seen the show, count it a blessing, but it is a singing competition, and it's actually just completed its 17th season. The show is responsible for giving as many pop stars over the last two decades. Part of the appeal of the show is how singers can go from obscurity to pop music star in a matter of weeks. Well, here in the book of Samuel, Saul goes from obscurity to king, what feels like overnight. But here, there was no competition to win. It was all God's doing. Saul was elected king of Israel, but there was no campaign. There was no opposing candidates. And by election, I mean God chose Saul. And the people celebrate the choosing of Saul, but Saul does not act like he won anything. No, actually, when his moment came, he was hiding. Saul seems to be a reluctant leader for Israel. I want us to think about this historic day in the history of redemption under three headings. The first being the rebuke. The second, the reveal. The third, the rule. First, the rebuke in verses 17 through 19. Look back in your Bibles with me. 
here on this occasion, this ceremonial occasion, it begins in a way that is unexpected to us. We would expect the choosing of a king to be surrounded by pop and circumstance with parades and confetti and bands. But instead, the prophet begins with a rebuke. He begins by rebuking the people for rejecting God as judge. In chapter 8 of Samuel, the people have asked for a king, a king like the nations. And at first, Samuel, let me remind you, was upset that they had rejected his leadership as prophet and judge over God's people. And God said, no, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting the theocracy that I wanted to govern my people, but it's okay. Give them a king. Heed their voice. Obey their voice. And so the Samuel on that day sent all the nation home. And here we see in verse 17 then, He's gathered them again at Mizpah. Now, Mizpah in the book of Samuel was significant. It was at Mizpah in chapter 7 that Samuel called the people to repentance. Their enemies were on their doorsteps, and they were panicking. And it was there that they fasted and cried out to God and repented, and Samuel then led them in deliverance against the Philistines. And I think it's intentional that he then gathers them again at Mizpah. One last chance to turn their hearts towards the Lord, to change their mind and say, no, it's not a good idea to reject God as king and to have a king like the nations. So there's almost as if there was a pause before the ceremony began. But there is no repentance. The people insist on having their king. And so comes the rebuke. It's structured in terms of a, an, what's called in Scripture or what Old Testament scholars would say the prophets deliver oracles of judgment. It begins with a reminder of God's goodness. Then it shows the people the guilt followed by the judgment that their guilt deserves. So it begins in 18 with a reminder of God's goodness. Look back there with me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, Israel, out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. It begins with God speaking in the first person, I have done this for you. I am your deliverer. I am your redeemer. When you were under the oppression of the most powerful tyrant the world has seen to that time in Pharaoh, I took care of him for you. And since then, though you've come under many threats, many foreign nations who want to overcome you and oppress you, I have been your deliverer. He's reminding them the king that they're walking away from how he has been a faithful king to them. But then he shows them their guilt in verse 19, the first half. But today, you, there the, the personal pronoun changes from God saying, I have done this for you to now let me tell you what you have done. You, 
have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. God is making it clear. This isn't merely a political request. This is a theological request. But I want us to take a moment and think about their rejection of God as king here. Their rejection here is a, we might call a civilized rebellion. A civilized rebellion. It's not like the time when Moses was on the mountain and there at the foot of the mountain, Aaron provides the golden calf and a party breaks out as they worship the golden calf. No, this is a very thoughtful rationalized rejection and rebellion against the one true God. We need to call rebellion what it is. It's not always hedonistic debauchery when someone is rejecting God as their king. More often than not, in civilized Western Judeo-Christian cultures like ours, Rejecting God as king is quite civilized, quite respectable, thought through. It doesn't always look like the drunk or the addict in the gutter. It's often accompanied by suits and ties and respectability in the community. Here we see a civilized rebellion. Then in the second half of verse 19, comes the judgment, the declaration of judgment. But it comes in a surprising way. It goes from you're expecting, now this is what I will do to you, verse 19, second half, now therefore, now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And if they still thought it was a good idea to have a king other than God. God wants to communicate to him one more time how terrible an idea it is. And so he gathers them by tribes and thousands, by families and clans. It looks a lot like Joshua chapter 7. What is about to happen? God is going to choose their king by lot. But the last time in Scripture where we see this happen, it's after the Israelites have come into the promised land. They've conquered Jericho, and then they suffer a defeat. They suffer a defeat to, to someone that they shouldn't have lost to. And they suffer a defeat because there was sin in the camp. Achan had taken things that were devoted to God. And so God through Joshua, called the nation together by their tribes and their clans and their families. And by lot, they whittled down to where the sin had taken place. And Achan and his family had to be destroyed for keeping the devoted things. And here, this is how God is going to show them their next king.
we can kind of understand why at this point Saul runs and hides. It could be that the weight of the moment, the seriousness of the offense, for even an unconverted man like Saul, he can see. He's not sure if he wants to have anything to do with this. Before moving on, we have to be reminded that this is done in the context of God's covenant with his people. That's the whole point of God reminding them that he is their redeemer and deliverer. That he has set them apart from the nations of the world to be a blessing to the world, to be a light to the world. That he has entered into a covenant relationship with them. And that he could have, as their deliverer, demand their obedience, and the right response would have been, yes, anything for the God who delivered us from Egypt. God could, as our creator, demand direct obedience. But he doesn't just call us to obedience as our creator. He calls us to obedience as a redeemer. The God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God of 1 Samuel chapter 10 is the God in which when he gives his Ten Commandments, he begins with the preface, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If you're a Christian in here, let me remind you that our obedience is not what saves us. But our obedience is the right response to the great salvation that we have received in Christ alone by grace alone, through faith alone. The rebuke. Then we come to the revealing. The reveal. The revealing of the people's king. They're going to get a king after their own heart. In verses 20 through 24. There as they are gathered together, there's a somewhat comical situation. When we were first introduced to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9, Saul was chasing lost donkeys. Now, as Saul is chosen to be king, they can't find him. Saul is lost. There's actually a play on words there in the passage. Saul's name means asked for. He is the asked for. They asked for a king. They got Saul. Asked for. Now, they asked the question, is there a man still to come? They asked again. And there, it's in verse 22. The Lord says, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Tim Chester puts it quite simply. They will not trust God to deliver them, but... They cannot even find their own king without God's help. God, in the whole process of giving them what they're asking for, over and over again, is pointing to them that he is their sovereign Lord, that he will not let go of his inheritance, that he will even orchestrate their rejection of him for his glory and his purposes. And then, we come to the one that is chosen. And here, we have what has remained through the ages, the 
refrain, long live the king. Samuel, as Saul comes out of hiding, refers to this is the one that the Lord has chosen. And up until this point, he has been spoken of as the anointed. The Lord has called him the prince over Israel. And it is here that the people say he is our king. They declare, long live the king. And what do they, what do they know about this man, Saul? They know very little about this man. What they do know is that as we've been told in 1 Samuel 9, he's a, he's a good-looking guy. They know what tribe he's come from. And when he appears coming out of the bags and he stands among the people, he's head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Now, in the ancient Near East, you would choose a king on this criteria. You would want the one who looked like a great mighty warrior because he was the one to lead you into battle. But here the people, they just know he's tall and appears to be strong. He looks the part, and they rejoice. There's nothing of his character that is demonstrated. There's no battle that he's won. What could be known about him is that he has trouble keeping track of his dad's donkeys. And here they celebrate that he will be their king. It's superficial. It's looking at the exterior. It's focusing on outward appearances. Not considering intellectual or spiritual qualities. He looks kingly. People do not change. People still are tempted to follow people based on appearances. Students, young people, and adults and parents, everyone, but especially the students among us, recognize this. Recognize that there's always a, ten, a temptation to follow strong, pretty people and to not consider their actual moral worth or should they be someone worth following. In our culture today, did you know you can make a career out of being an influencer. And what that means is that you are a social media influencer. It means that you have gathered enough people who like your images on different social media platforms and companies will pay you to promote their products because people are following your leadership, your influence. As kids of the church and students raised in the house of God, don't follow your peers in this way. Athletes in our day are too those who, like Saul, they look the part as people who should be admired and respected and followed. They're tall, they're strong. Men and women who do great athletic accomplishments I'm not saying that athletes should not have opinions about cultural and political matters and that you shouldn't consider what they have to say. I'm saying just don't follow an athlete because they are accomplished and famous. Just because someone wins a Super Bowl or a World Series or an NBA championship or a World Cup 
doesn't mean that they have moral authority to speak about life's most important issues, to shape the way you think about relationships and political matters. There is the story of Bill Russell, who after winning his fifth NBA championship, did something that was very bold. It was 1963, and the civil rights activist Medgar Evers was just assassinated in Jackson, Mississippi. And Bill Russell decided to go and hold a basketball camp in Jackson, Mississippi in 1963. But not just any basketball camp, it was going to be an integrated basketball camp with white boys and black boys and white girls and black girls. And upon the announcement of this, Bill Russell received death threats. And he did it anyway. When it comes to some of the most important issues in the 1960s, Bill Russell was someone to take into account what he had to say, but not because he won championships, but because he demonstrated real courage and character. So each student and young person in here takes stock. Who is it that you admire? Who is it that you look up to? And be reminded that the prophet Isaiah said that when Jesus came, there wouldn't be outward appearances that would attract you to him. If you saw Jesus today, you would be impressed. But when he took on flesh, he was humble. He looked like any other 30-something Middle Eastern Jew of his day. He did not stand out by his appearance, but by his character, his love for his heavenly father, his love for the hurting and the lost. Consider the character of the people who are influencing your life. Then we come to the new ruler. And after the author of Samuel has, has painted this terrible picture of what is to come under Saul's reign, and it will get bad, he will demonstrate to be one who is not obedient. His administration gets off to a good start here at the end of chapter 10. The rule of the new ruler. In verses 25 through 27, we see something interesting. And then into chapter 11, we see Saul is a decent king at first. What makes him a decent king? Well, in verse 25, it says, Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. That was most likely the rules for kingship from the book of Deuteronomy. And then notice in verse 26, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. So, the administration begins with the prophet saying, this is what God's word says about kings and how they should rule over you. Everyone go to your home and the new king obeys the prophet. He begins his kingship as a man submitted to the authority of God's word. And so, 
Godly men follow him. There in verse 26 again, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. There were those who were present that day who when they saw Saul come forward and when they saw him obey the word of the prophet, the Lord stirred their hearts and this is most likely the beginning of an organized military force among Israel, those who would be willing to die for this king. But then there's other men there in verse 27, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. These were probably those who were excited that finally we'll throw off the reign of God. But when they see the new king obey the word of God, they don't like him anymore. The word worthless fellows was also spoken of the sons of Eli earlier in the book of Samuel. Those who abused their privileges, those who were godless priests who'd lived in gross sin before the people. And now these people are opposing, these men are opposing Saul or lumped in the same group as Eli's sons. They're not excited that Saul will be their king. And this is something for all of us. Will we prize leaders who are obedient to God's word or will we prize leaders who look the part? Because obedient leaders will not always please us. Their allegiance is to our Lord. And so in the church, will we value gifts above a man's character? Or will we look to see those exalted among us who have demonstrated faithfulness, humility, and obedience to the word of God and not be like the worthless fellows here? Saul's response to these men is very kingly. It says that, but he held his peace. He's patient with his enemies. Those who from the outset oppose his leadership, he shows them mercy. Here, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul goes from obscurity to the throne. He was the king chosen by God for a rebellious people. There's points, there's hints of the king who will leave his throne of heaven but for the obscurity of a manger in Bethlehem. And here in Saul's first act as king to show mercy to these men who are opposing his leadership, we see something of how King Jesus will redeem his enemies. Saul doesn't act rashly with his enemies. Jesus will do better by dying in the place of his enemies. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his, the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. What is God doing through raising up Saul? Well, at some point, he's, he's going to lead us to the king we didn't ask for, but we really need. Some of you, in a, a gathering this size, there has to be someone who is somewhat new to the Christian message. Jesus is the king we proclaim to you. If you did not know him before, and you realize that you have been living in rebellion to the one true king of the universe, that king has mercy for you. He invites you to come, to turn from your sins, and to trust that through his death on the cross, God's enemies are reconciled to God. That God's enemies are brought into his family. Some of you are, you are not new to the Christian message. You have heard the message of the cross. You have heard the goodness of God. You know of your guilt and your need for a Savior. But if you were honest this morning, you were living in quiet, civilized rebellion to King Jesus. Outwardly, you may play the part, but inwardly, you reject his lordship. I must tell you that you can be running from God while sitting in the pew each Sunday. And King Jesus, to you too, says, come and know the forgiveness of sins. Come and no longer be an enemy in the pew, but be a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our great God and Savior is to Christ and to Him alone that any of us have any hope. So we lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God now. So, our God, I ask for myself and for your people that you would give us a whole heart devoted to you, that we may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes. I pray for the backslidden and the rebellions among us, that you would restore our souls that you would lead us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. Help us to hold fast the confession of our hope without favor, wavering. For you have promised and you are faithful. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.